The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. One line and miss, and Mike Fires has thrown his second no-hitter. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2-2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts one. Way back! Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From the opener to launch angles to clutch moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Cast Live. Here's Chris Townsend. Now joining us, he's the number one pick for your Oakland Athletics out of Clemson, Logan Davidson. I'm Chris Townsend. I'm the guy that's been the A's guy for many years. And for all these years, all these players, I'm always their first interview. So welcome to A's Cast Live. And uh, today, a special day for not only you, but for your family. Oh, absolutely. It's been an honor to be here. And I, you know, watching you in the press conference, I mean, this is something that you dream about, right? Your first time being in a big league uniform in a big league stadium. And I talked about the pressure where you got all these people. It's not a normal BP. You got all the. What was that like taking BP with all the cameras on you? Oh, man. I mean, you get used to the cameras, honestly. It's a little different trying to get used to the BP thrower and stuff like that. It's definitely a little nerve-wracking. But once you get a feel for it, you just go from there. It's fine. So when you think about the transition from college to now, how excited are you just because you guys had a phenomenal year, obviously, Clemson. You, you didn't get to where you wanted to go. But now you got to focus on being a big leader. How, how much do you just want to just get out there and start playing pro ball? I mean, you said it. That's what it is. I mean, I want to get out there and, you know, continue to get better every day. That's what it's all about, you know, getting opportunities. Uh, when you get those opportunities, making the most of them. I'm excited to get started. I'm going out to Vermont to get started. So that's uh, looking forward to that. I think they already started their season, but uh, they'll be out there uh, real soon. So. It's probably one of those things the minute you get drafted and Clemson's out, you're like, I'm ready to go. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing else to do. No more sitting around. Let's get going, you know. So when you think about your size, you're a tall shortstop, and we didn't realize you were going to be this tall. And seeing you, the range that you have, talk about your game. We'll get to the offense. Talk about your game defensively. Uh, I mean, you already touched on it, kind of a bigger body shortstop. So the main thing i got to focus on is footwork. Um, you know, I've been, I haven't been on the dirt in a while, you know, obviously since we got turf and stuff like that. But uh, even uh, Marcus said something to me, you know, footwork's a little slow right now. So i got to get back on the dirt and uh, get that get that rolling. But that's the key for me is uh, having good footwork and uh, moving through the ball. As a, as a taller guy, you got to stay low. And, uh, you know, that plays, as footwork plays into the arm, throws are good. And I saw you out there with Matt Chapman, who's also a Boris mm-hmm. client, who's arguably the best defensive third baseman, if not infielder in all of baseball. Marcus was up for a gold glove last year. Chapman was the platinum glove. Mm-hmm. What was it like talking with those two guys who are two of the best in baseball? Yeah, that was definitely pretty cool. Uh, I was trying to learn from them, you know, I was asking them questions and stuff, you know, what their routines are like on a, on a game day. Um, pretty cool stuff, you know, to listen to them and, and what they like to do. Obviously, they play every day, so they got to, you know, keep their bodies in check. They can't you know, overdo stuff. Sometimes in college ball, we like to, we like to do a lot more than we need to. Um, but we're also not playing as much as them. But they got to save their bodies sometimes. So uh, they have a good, they have a good uh, short routine and what they what they know they need to do in order to you know get ready for the game. So switch hitter pops from both sides of the plate. You said earlier you like to play with a flare. You know a lot of switch hitters we don't see have tremendous power. But talk about when your power first started to come to you. Uh, probably senior year of high school. I mean from junior to senior year is my biggest jump. Um, I didn't really. No, I don't think anyone really saw it coming. I mean, I, hit, I only hit nine, which is not that phenomenal, you know, in high school, but it's it's a decent amount. And then uh, just kind of continue to transfer into college, um, you know, freshman season, and then sophomore just kept getting more and more, and just like, you know, consistent hard contact is what you're looking for because you don't you don't have to try to hit it out. You just kind of you know carry if you make make good contact with it. So the A's have talked about they've been looking at you since you were in high school. Did you know you've been on their radar for this long? Uh, not particularly. I mean, I, I didn't really know for sure. I mean. Not until, you know, they, they called my name, which is, you know, a pretty cool moment for me and my family. I was thinking about this. There's something about the draft and for college baseball at the time. It's got to be pretty nerve-wracking for all you guys. Is You've got a goal to win a national championship, but yet you guys are getting drafted and you're finding out during games that you've been drafted. And it's what is that like when you got to focus on trying to win with Clemson, but yet you know you're getting drafted? Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, Clemson's the main focus. You know, that's what it is. You, you gotta, you gotta do what you can to help your team win. That's what it's all about. 
Um, but, you know, as soon as we kind of lost out of the regional, unfortunately, didn't make it as far as we wanted to. Um, you know, we were, we were on a bus ride back for, you know, almost the entire day on draft day. And uh, I just learned to kind of figure out the answer, I don't know, <laughs> when people ask me stuff because I don't know. Uh, there's too many variables. You can't try to predict anything in, in baseball. Um, so I was just, you know, I was just getting – didn't really know what to expect going in. I mean, uh, I didn't know where I was going, obviously. You have no, no clue. And just being on the bus all day, you don't really talk to anybody or anything. Um, but, I mean, it worked out it worked out great. You know, I'm here in Oakland today, and, and yesterday has been a pretty awesome experience for me. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, you're in the Bay Area, one of the great parts of the country. And, and you said in your press conference you know about the A's, and a lot of young players know about the A's because of the movie in the book Moneyball. That's right. That's right. Yep. I've seen the movie. Great movie. So when I think about Oakland, you know, there's a lot of Clemson's guys coming to Oakland after the NFL is, draft and you're coming around. I mean, there's a, Clemson will be well represented here in the Bay Area for the next few years. They will for sure. Something about these Clemson boys they like. When you start projecting, I know they asked you in the press conference, it's very tough when someone says, hey, when are you going to believe the big leagues? I mean, but you have an idea as a college player, far different from a high school player, you want to get there pretty fast. So when you start thinking – do, do you have an idea? I'm not going to even ask what that number, that amount of years, but yeah. do you have an idea? I mean, years-wise, I have no idea. I'm just, think, I'm just thinking, I mean, I'm grateful to be in an organization that allows people to have great opportunities and continue to get opportunities and, you know, just make the most of them, like I said earlier, as I get them. You know, just make sure I keep, my, keep preparing and uh, keep putting in my hard work and be ready for those. Your dad was in the big leagues. How much do you think that's going to help you? A lot. I mean, I learned a lot from him. I mean, I don't even know where to start. I mean, he started me off switching when I was three years old because he knew kind of the struggles of hitting the right on right slider or whatever it is. Um, so, I mean, I, I owe a lot to him and my family. I'm very thankful for them. And, you know, having them out here today and yesterday has been a blessing. It's been awesome for me. So, if you started at three, but you're a natural right-handed when you were a little kid? I've always thrown right-handed. I've started switching since I was three because he knew he, <laughs> he knew what to expect. So I can thank him for that. I mean, growing up, you're, you're hitting mostly from the left side because everybody's a right-handed thrower. But until you get the college ball, then it kind of bounces out. I think sophomore year actually got you know 20 or 20 some more at bats from the right side, which is the first year since I've you know been switch hitting that I've gotten more from the right side. But definitely bounced out. And one of the difficult balances for a switch hitter is maintaining both swings. Tough. So when you look at maintaining both, are both your swings similar? Are they different? And how do you maintain both swings? They're, I'd say they're, they're similar in their ways, but they're definitely not the same swing. Um, I'm a right-hand dominant because I'm a right-hand thrower. So I like to, you know, it's, I get to the ball probably quicker from, from the right side just because of that top hand. Um, from the left side, sometimes I have a tendency to kind of dip because that right hand still dominant. It's kind of pulling through. Um, so I get to do a lot of one-hand stuff to kind of balance that out. Um, as far as maintaining goes, <laughs> Ooh, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, sometimes they're both feeling great, and that's kind of rare. Um, but for me, it's more when I, where I'm getting my at-bats from. If I'm getting more at-bats from one side of the plate, I'm probably more comfortable from there. Which side do you have more power from? I'd say raw power, probably right-handed. Now, oh, I don't even know. <laughs> it's pretty close. It's pretty close, I will say. Whichever side I'm working from the most at the time is kind of dependent on the starters and stuff you're seeing. Um, I don't know. I can hit them pretty good from both sides. I think what's going to be good for you in pro ball, you're going to see a lot of left-handed pitchers. So, you, so yeah, I can see where a lot of right-handed dominant as you're coming up. College, you'll see more. In pro ball now, you'll see a lot more left-handers, and that should really play for your right side. Yeah, absolutely. Just going going straight to the ball with that top hand is key for me. Um, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. I like hitting lefties. So where do you go? Are you going straight to Vermont from here? Yes, that's what I've been told. Well, let's get it going. That's right. Let's go. Congratulations on getting signed. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, you. you know, for a baseball player, time to get work, working out and all that's got to get old as you want to get out and play. Oh, yeah. So Absolutely. congratulations. Go enjoy the moment uh, with your family, and we'll see you down in spring training. And good luck to you in Vermont. Sounds good. Thank you all. He's the super agent. The man has changed the game over the years, and he's joining us now because a special day as your client was taking BP and I got to think for you as an agent, when guys sign with you, it's about their careers, and you help them through their careers. It's kind of like a proud papa for you. Well, certainly it's something for me that when you've known him since high school and, and you hope that he would go to college, and in this case, Logan got his degree in three years, achieved that, which is one of his goals, and then to improve as a player, be a switch hitter, and you know, and become the player he's become and become a first-round draft pick. It's a tall order. It's a tall order. And so a lot of credit to his father, Mark, who's a big leaguer, and uh, mother, Linda. They really did a lot of things because 
most athletes do not take the course that Logan's taken, being so disciplined academically and, and athletically to get where he's at. So I, I really think that the A's got a great talent, but they also got a, a person and a, and a learning player, which really fits well with the model of the type of players they choose. Yeah, it's the modern-day organizations. I know we're all about a lot of data out there, but you want character in that clubhouse character wins championships and that's something that that we have seen with him and it's great to see his family and his sister and his girlfriend as just the, the start of everything one thing that really caught our eye he's taller than i thought he was going to be so he's got some big shoulders for his shortstop yeah the comparison was Corey, uh, one of our other clients Corey seager who's also around six three six four and he's got leverage and athleticism and can really move around the diamond and uh so he is uh, a guy that he's going to get stronger. And uh, as you can see, the ball, he hit a few balls out here. Um, you know, he's going to be a, a very, very good offensive shortstop. And I, uh, I had Matt go over and throw next to him. And when you get next to the Chapman arm, you got to be cautious. But <laughs> I, I thought Logan stood up pretty nicely against him, you know, throwing the ball across the infield. So we're all interested in Matt Chapman, your client, because, you know, we want him here for – his entire career. We want him to be the face of the franchise. We want him leading the charge into the new ballpark. Have you had discussions with Billy and David about a, a potential contract extension for Matt? You know, I, I think when you have Matt in an organization, we always do. We listen, obviously, because that's what Matt's instructed me to do because um, I work for Matt and, and and in the process of the ownership and the Fisher family and and uh, and Billy and David, obviously, we sit down and talk about it. I think the Oakland the Oakland franchise is one that's it's. I think being from Northern California, you can explain to your clients a lot about where where we're going here, and this is really going to be a an excellent base for a major league franchise because uh, we're going to see this Bay Area grow from nine ten million people to thirteen fourteen. We're going to see the transition of the city of Oakland. Uh, you know, where you're going to see a lot of people that are in the workforce in the 30s and 40s, the, the tech world, the corporate uh, dynamic. We're going we're gonna to see major changes in this area. And coupled with that is the future of Major League Baseball because I think Major League Baseball is going to have a – you just have a market in Japan and Korea that is almost an additional, you know, 180 million people. So you may see as many as five franchises. And then you're going to have this time zone. You're going to have a – a trans-Pacific uh, entity to our game. Um, so I, I think we're uh, to have franchises in these areas grow up to be what they should be, and that is major components of the league. Um, I think Oakland has all that, and that definition and that evolution, I think this ownership has a vision for, uh, beginning with the stadium. And once players see that that actually is going to happen and that this becomes a destination to stay, uh, then the, the culture of what players think of Oakland is not a three or four year stay, but maybe a career dynamic. Uh, once that is something that is realized and believed uh, with the definition of a base and an ownership uh, commitment to do all that, I think then you're gonna see players look at this area and and this franchise very differently than they did in the past yeah because i know doing the post game they want this kid signed because this fan base absolutely loves him i, wa I want to get in with you about since the world series of last year when the red sox won to where we are today i i, I stopped keeping track but it's like 38 39 extensions instead of guys going to free agency we've seen a record number of extensions why do you think we're seeing that with with this modern day player well, I think one of the things that uh, in 2008 we had 51 players that were qualifiers, had 500 plate appearances that were 30 and above. In 2018, we have the same number. The game is not getting younger because we need veteran players to play. They have to be good veteran players. And the number of them, obviously, there's only 50 or so every decade that can play with that age. Now, what there is less of, there's a lot of less of part-time players that are 30 and under playing. But the level of young players and the level of contracts, this may be a surprise because people don't know it, but it hasn't changed. You can go back 10 years ago, and I can give you extensions for close to 15 or 20 great young players. Ken Griffey Jr. signed early. You can you can go right down the list. And and so the truth of it is it's more publicized when you're talking about, about Acuna. And uh, <laughs> I'm you almost, got, you almost got hit by the mayor. <laughs> uh, I, 
I was a, I was a 290 hitter, but I made a lot of errors. It worried me. You were a, you, you were a Padre farmhand, right? Uh, I actually played for the Cubs and the Cardinals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so when you're when you're uh, uh, we had the mayor tossing balls. I yes. Okay. I better tell her that I'm a Northern California resident. I don't know. But the uh, we uh, we've got a uh, uh, a dynamic in the game where we tend to focus on the young players. But frankly, when you look at the winning franchises, it's really about a combination of doing three things. The trilogy. You have to do it in the draft, and you have to do it. Uh, in trades, and you have to do it in free agency. When you go to the Cubs or the Astros, and then people talk about it, Cubs spent 450 to 500 million dollars in free agent players. You know Hayward, Lester, Lackey, you know Zobrist. You can go down. Now, granted, they had a great draft with Bryant, Almora, Baez, and then they made trades with Addison Russell here, and um, you know Rizzo to build their team. And you can go and tear every team down. So, to get players in free agency and to get uh, to get them to stay here and also to sign your draft picks, you've got to have a, a platform, a definition that says, we've got to have a commitment to do all those things if we want to have a, a winning baseball team in today's culture. You know, we have more data than ever before, and we have a lot of this track, man, and Rapsado and the high-tech cameras. Do you ever talk with your players about it? Because sometimes this may not be what's best for your client. You always want to have what's best for your client. Well, I, I, I love information. The old story is, is that information is always helpful. The question is, with each individual player, what weight do you put on the information with that player? And so you may have a player that says, oh, you know, my spin rate goes way up when I do this, this, and this. But the reality of it is he then loses his angle on his fastball when his spin rate goes up. And then when he does that, he's not pitching how he used to pitch to get himself to the big leagues. And then he's lost the way that he's pitched by an adjustment that increases his spin rate, which they're happy about, but his pitchability has been lost. So in the melding of modern-day technology, metrics, and evaluation, you have to also include psychology, player history, and also a performance gradient where his ability to do what he needs to do his way. Because some players have deception, and that deception has nothing to do with the spin rate. So consequently, if he increases his spin rate and loses his deception, you may have a, a, an easier look at the baseball with a greater spin rate, but then the hitter has more time because he sees it earlier. So all these things have to be graded into how you look at each component. And, and certainly more information is great and... Um, I don't think the mayor understands the concept that <laughs> I'm going to protect you. you know, that that, uh, that uh, she is a wonderful politician and, and can't throw a lick. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, so when you, uh, um, I, I don't know if she wants our evaluation, but the, hey, let's move you over yeah, here. Let's the, move you over here. There we go. Okay. So you know, when we talk about uh, looking at the human brain. Yeah. Is that the is that the next wave of dealing with players is neurological and seeing how they tick? You know, when you work with players every day and you get phone calls from superstars and they go, I'm lost. And I always tell them, I'm not going to talk to you about your swing. That's for your coaches. You're there every day. But the psychology of what they do and you're talking to them about how they prepare themselves mentally. Like, what are you what are you looking at? Your your problem is your selection, not your swing. So what are you thinking pre-pitch? Well, if I'm thinking about what he may do or he may not do, um, you know, excuse me, you have a family, you, may, you better watch out over here, the mayor's family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the, the idea of it is that there's a whole psychological component that on elite players, great major leaguers, that has a monstrous impact, which is not graded in the algorithm of war, of consistency and, and what we're trying to do. All those things are, are a function of a, uh, a process that a wider range for evaluation and the true value of players has to include. I, I have a lot of teams now that are bringing young players to the big leagues. When you have three young players in the big leagues who are trying to play every day, instead of having a veteran there who's used to playing two or three days a week and he talks to the young players and helps them, all of a sudden the locker room's different, everything's different. So you really gotta watch what you do as far as talent development, the psychology of players, your locker room and everything. And that's why I think a lot of these, uh, that the, what we're going to see in the future is weights put on the value of metrics and more weight put on the psychology of it. Because frankly, 
uh, all the modern technology is not doing a lot of things that they thought it would do. It's been helpful, but the truth of the matter is, is that it has to be integrated in a way where we probably need to look at other factors about players as much or more as we do the technical factors of their performance. Hey, it's an absolute honor to have you on the program. We truly appreciate Chris, it. Chris, great. I'm glad I survived. And, yeah, you survived. <laughs> <laughs> we are now joined by one of the greatest pitchers of all time, a three-time World Series champion, a three-time Cy Young Award winner, six-time All-Star, and it's an honor to have you on the program. Jim Palmer, thank you so much for coming down and be a part of this. Well, you're welcome. I assume I'm on. Yes, you yes, are on. You are on. We are on live, and we're rocking. So, you know, looking at today's baseball, we were just talking about it, you know, and because and so many A's fans remember the great battles you had against the Oakland A's, especially in the 70s. Boy, how the game has changed. Well, yeah. I mean, they had a pretty nice team. I mean, you'd, you know, come in, it, well, you know, it started, uh, what, 71, I guess, was the first year we played the A's. We, you know, we would lose to the Pirates in seven games, but to get to the World Series back then, you didn't. You only had the one, uh, you had the championship series, well, kind of the division series, three out of five, and we ended up beating the A's. I actually pitched here. I threw 169 pitches in a game, gave up three home runs, two to Reggie to the opposite field, and then Salbando hit one, but we won five to three, and then 169 pitches in the first um, uh, World Series game against the Pirates. A little different era there, but they, they, you know, they had some tremendous teams here, and then you know, 72, uh, we didn't get to the playoffs. 73 and 4, they beat us in the playoffs. And, you know, those years, as you know, they were, you know, the uh, the A's won. In fact, I was looking at their team ERAs in 72, 3, and 4 when they won the championships. Incredibly low, like 269, you know, 309, and another one in, uh, way under three runs a game. So uh, the ball wasn't as lively then as it is now. And you said 169 pitches. There's no way you'd ever see anything like that again. Well, we used to count them. Uh, you know, we used to have a pitching chart, and the day before you'd pitch, you'd, you'd uh, you know, you'd keep track of it. Uh, but they didn't really care. I, I, my first start in, um, you know, I kind of had to be with the club in 65 uh, because back then you didn't have a 40-man roster. You, you only had 25 guys and one guy you could protect. So I stayed in the big leagues, and the next year I thought I was – Going to the uh, minor leagues, and a bunch of guys got hurt in spring training. So my first start was in Fenway Park. I hit a home run because it was before the DH. Threw 177 pitches and uh, won 8-1 to one and, uh, you know, struck out 11. I think walked 7. And Harry Bikin was our pitching coach uh, who had been a great uh, pitcher with the Cardinals. And they said, uh, well, what do you want to see Palmer do? He said, well, we want to get that pitch count down in the 140s. So, uh, again, you know, they counted them, but uh, you just kind of threw them and, that's what you got paid for. I, I, you know, Andrew Castro, who's going to pitch for the Orioles tonight, said, I don't I, I don't realize how you um, pitched all those innings and, you know, threw all those pitches. I said, well, because we had to. And, uh, you know, the, the A's were no different. Uh, you know, if you look at Vita's first year in 71 or Catfish or Kenny Holtzman or a lot of the guys. In fact, you know, Raleigh Fingers is in the Hall of Fame. I think most people think because of his ability, you know, to save games and as a relief pitcher. But I actually – uh, end up winning the game here three two against him uh, when he was a starting pitcher. So, you know, they had a lot of great pitchers for, for the A's and, you know, had a lot of position players that could beat you in so many different ways. You know, the first time I met you was in 1999 at the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I think of that era that you played in, all the great players in the National League, in the American League, and those all-star games that you had were so legendary. What was it like really playing in one of the great eras where it really had so much talent? Well, this is a, I mean, I don't want to demean the, you know, the, the era we have now, but here in 1970, um, Earl Weaver had said at the luncheon I was going to be the next 30-game winner. I hadn't won 20 yet. Uh, of course, I would go on to win 20 games eight out of the next nine years. But, you know, so, you know, Mays led off and Pete Rose hit second. I think Johnny Bench hit third and Aaron hit fourth, you know, 700 and, uh, what, 55 home runs or whatever it was. So, uh, you know, it was a pretty good era. But, uh, you know, again, back then it was – my first roommate in baseball when I was 19 in the big leagues was Robin Roberts, who I think he had 605 uh, lifetime starts in 307 complete games. So it was a totally different era. I used to put him to sleep asking him questions, and he said, this is how, he said, number one, the best pitch in baseball is a fastball. You have a great one. I hope you're smart enough to understand that. Number two, you got a fastball you can throw for a strike. You have one you can throw for a ball. Same with your breaking ball. Good luck. 
And that's how it kind of <laughs> Good started. Night. Yeah. Well, well, he did say, you know, I was, like I said, I was 19 and he was 38. And um, I'm about to get run over by, what, what is this? Um, by, by a card here. But, uh, he, you know, he said, listen, now I'm 38, you're 19. He said, I need to get some sleep. So that's enough questions for now. But, but just think about the dynamics when you're 19 years old and you get to, you know, have back, you know, back then he did have roommates and Robin was good enough to actually help me uh, eventually become as good a pitcher as I would become. That and the fact that I played on, you know, one of the better organizations in baseball at that time. Oh, no doubt about it. The Oriole way, as they used to say, the great Jim Palmer joins us here on A's Cast Live. And you think of all the the science that we have now with all the radar and the track man and these high-tech cameras. Would you have liked to have all that back in your day to know your spin rate and your spin efficiency and that kind of stuff? Well, you know, Earl Weaver is one of the first guys that started using a, uh, you know, he's a Hall of Fame manager. He's since, you know, passed away about four years ago, but. He used the radar gun because if a guy couldn't, it would lose velocity late in the ball game. And, you know, the year we all won 20 games in, in 71, Coyar, McNally, Pat Dobson, and myself, we had 72 complete games. But if you would lose velocity, and those guys usually didn't, uh, that wasn't the case for them. You know, Steve Stone won, you know, won the Cy Young Award in 1980, won 25 games. But if he lost velocity in the seventh or eighth inning, he was gone. And that was one of the ways to tell. Um, I think... You know, if you go back and look at that particular era, um, if they had said, okay, why are they hitting all those pop-ups? Why are hitters telling you on when you're pitching on Wednesday, Monday, I'm not going to swing at that high fastball. Tuesday, I'm laying off that high fastball, and Wednesday, they'd swing at it. I, I guess I had pretty good spin rate. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, you know, the hitters kind of told me that. So, you know, I think now, again, because I think in, in this age, and, and, I, and again, I'm not, you know, say anything to denigrate the modern-day pitcher because, you know, this year particularly because the ball's so alive um, or more lively than it's been, um, it's a different era. You don't throw as much. You, you know, you don't throw 130, 40 pitches. So I used to play a lot of golf with Jim Cott, who won 283 games, 16 straight gold gloves. And he used to always say when we were playing on the golf course, he said, don't you think pitching's feel and touch? So if you don't throw as many pitches, do you really probably have the same feel and touch? You know, it's probably a little more of a max effort game to, for, for some guys. So maybe the, you know, the cameras and all the analytics. You know, Buck Showalter was the Oriole manager for, you know, for what, about five or six years. No longer there, but, um, you know, he was manager of the year, you know, with the Yankees in 94 and then the Rangers in 2004, the Orioles in 2014. And a lot of people said, well, Buck doesn't like analytics. And, and Buck would simply say, if you can make my hitters or my pitchers better, I'm all for analytics. But let's not everybody's the same. So, you know, while I, I don't think, while I think it can help people and, you know, it can teach you um, maybe how to, st- how to stay behind your, uh, your fastball a little bit better or maybe underneath your breaking ball so you'll have better, you know, horizontal and vertical break. Um, so does a good windup, and those cameras don't teach you a, a good windup. What they do is maybe get let you know when you have a bad windup. But we always, you know, the hitter always told us that. You know, they always say, "What's that? Uh, that you know, maybe it's that, that verbiage." The hitter's always going to tell you how you're pitching. So when I and, and I think about you know you as a pitcher and your era, you guys were actually able to learn how to pitch and pitch through trouble. And that's the thing I'm a little bit worried. Like in the minor leagues now. We're babying these guys so much, they don't know how to pitch through trouble, and now we're getting into this world of five and dive. Well, I, you know, we used to always call it, you know, five and fly, and, uh, you know, there have been some pretty good pitchers that did that in my era, but not not a whole lot of them. Um, you know, I watch spring training games. I, You know, we don't broadcast that many, so I'll probably do two, three, maybe four spring training games. And in my era, you know, you – you would pitch on Wednesday. You'd pitch two innings in an inter-squad game. You'd pitch three innings on Saturday because we pitched every fourth day. We'd actually pitch one day shorter. And then you'd go to four innings, five innings maybe once, seven innings three or four times, and then you'd go down the bullpen. So if you had to pitch extra innings on opening day, um, you can do that. I mean, Burt Blylevin beat me on a misplayed fly ball in the 10th inning opening day uh, in Baltimore uh, probably in, I don't know, 1971 or two. So, again, you had to train yourself. That's what you got paid for. Uh, and, you know, Earl Weavers, you know, who was a you know, Hall of Fame manager, would say, listen, if, if you're not going to stay out there, we'll find somebody else that can do that. So it's changed a little bit. I, but I do think one thing that you have to be really concerned about when you 
make more of an investment than they did again with us, even though you still have to have, you know, 10 pitches when I pitched and now it's 13, is if a guy, a young pitcher does not have a good windup, you don't want to have him throwing, you know, 95 or 100 pitches and hurting himself. So I think it's kind of a fine line, but if a guy can pitch, he has a good windup, he can repeat it. The only way you do learn to pitch when you're a little bit tired or exhausted or whatever word you want to term it is, is to actually get a chance to do that. And you're right about the fact that they don't let guys out there. But, you know, most clubs want to win ball games and they look at the numbers. And now we all know that the third time through an order, um, you know, the batting average usually goes up, so you're gone. And they go to the bullpen. I mean, one of Oakland's great strengths last year was their bullpen. This year, you know, at least to this point, not so much. So that needs to change for the, you know, for the A's to get back to and, and start winning baseball games. You know, one thing I've always wanted to ask you, because for many, many years, when you walked into a department store, <laughs> there was Jim Palmer. You were the spokesman for Jockey, and there you were in your underwear. Did you realize when you first agreed to that deal that it was going to be so big for your career? Well, actually, I, I went up on the Metro Liner, $35 round trip to New York. Pete Rose missed his flight. They spent $5,000 to fly him in from, uh, from Atlanta on a private jet. So right then I... I, I think I looked a little bit better than Pete because there were nine there were actually uh, there were nine there were nine athletes in the first ad and it was take away the uniforms and what do you have so you know I did that and the next year I did another ad where actually I, I was throwing kind of a, I don't know what they call it some kind of you know slow motion thing and uh, and then it, that was what 77 78 and 79 I didn't use anybody and then you know meanwhile I had done some appearances for him and things like that so they asked me in 1980, and I played for the Orioles, and we had the best winning percentage in 20 years I was there. I knew that maybe I could go to New York or some other place and make a little bit more money, but, you know, you're, you're trying to raise, I, you know, two girls, trying to raise them. Uh, they like Baltimore. It's a you know, great place to, to, to grow up, and I knew that I, if I could stay healthy, I had a chance to win 20 games. I, I don't think I ever thought about getting to the Hall of Fame, but I, I know that the immediate goal was to stay healthy and win 20 games, and you know, we had the type of club that maybe didn't go to the World Series every year, but we certainly were in contention. So I just tried to figure out a way. So how can I make as much money as, as I would have if I played in with the Yankees by playing with the Orioles? And underwear became uh, my vehicle. Well, I mean, you, 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 could, you could go into, like, I remember this one store. I grew up in San Diego. It was called Bullocks. And you'd walk in. There would be a whole section of just you. No, no, no. It's not quite that. We, You know, they didn't want to turn people off, but... I, I, I was waiting for a car in Chicago, and a, and a, 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 a nice-looking guy and an even nicer-looking woman is walking down the sidewalk. It's on a Saturday morning, and, you know, I got like five minutes for the car to get there, and uh, the guy says, well, wait a minute, you're Jim Palmer. He said, I'm Bill Farley. I, I own or I run Union Underwear. We make 40% of the underwear made in this country, either private label for department stores, etc." And he said, you know, the big, one of the great mysteries, he says, you do a great job with jockey. I said, well, I just work for him. He said, no, no, one of the great mysteries in life is we have 40% in the market and everybody thinks jockey is the biggest underwear house in the United States. And I said, well, obviously you have the wrong people working for you. <laughs> so he got a laugh out of that. So, um, but again, they, you know, they, they, I, you know, I was in Sports Illustrated. I was in, I mean, a lot, most of the magazines, uh, you can name it. And again, I had company for the first two years and then I was kind of a, you know, until Bart Connor, the gymnast, came on, and you know, and then they got into women's underwear and things like that. So, it was a good run. I did a probably five or six hundred store appearances. I got to meet people throughout the country um, that love baseball. And you know, if you Bill Herman was the guy that thought this up, he's men would have liked to have done what I was able to do and be part of you know World Series teams and things like that. And 75 percent of uh, men's underwear is bought by women. And, they test. They really. They actually took the tall guy. They tested Steve Garvey and, and, and Jim Palmer. Me, sound like Reggie when I say Jim Palmer, and me. And um, <laughs> you know, they're talking about uh, third person, uh, Cakes. <laughs> that was my nickname. But anyway, they tested the two of us, and they chose me because I was a little bit taller than Steve. The straw that stirs the drink in the underwear world. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for your hey, time. Well, today. you're welcome. Well, this good is, luck with the show. This was awesome. Yeah, it's a new thing in Major League Baseball, and hopefully, we'll all look back at this and. Uh, We'll remember where it all started, right here on the field oh, in Oakland. Okay, I wanted to know about that. <laughs> anyway, well, thanks, guys. Mr. Palmer, okay. thank you for You're your time. Oh, One of the pleasure. greats of all time. Thank you. Do we have the Mad Dog? Chris, how are we doing? Welcome to uh, A's Cast Live. 
Good to be with you guys. How you doing today? Things good? What's going on? Fill me in. The reason I wanted to have you on is because what I've done in my career is something that you did also. As we were on terrestrial radio, you took that chance to go to satellite and start your own series and start your own and have your own network. We're doing the same thing here as we are We are the only team in baseball allowed to have a 24-7 station on TuneIn. We are the guinea pig. Everybody in Major League Baseball is watching us because they know this is the future. So you understand taking that risk. Wow. And we're doing the same thing here with the Oakland A's. Oh, very good. That's a tremendous job. Sort of a uh, all A's, all A's all the time, almost like being in Green Bay doing a Packers show 24-7. Uh, that's a tremendous job. Listen, in my situation, I knew the owner, uh, Mel Carmerson, very well. Uh, I knew, um, uh, you know, I, 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 was, I had done 20 years on, on terrestrial, so it was time for a little bit of a change. Uh, you know, serious. Although they were struggling at that time, they did have Howard Stern. So uh, I knew that uh, you know, as long as Howard was there, the place was going to have some listeners. So it wasn't quite as dramatic as uh, a lot of folks would like to believe. But what you guys are doing—that's a heck of a job. I was not even aware of that. So for you to do basically uh, A's twenty-four-seven. Uh, uh, is it doing it in the off-season as well? Is it 365 days a year? No, we're doing it all year long, and, and we've developed this show, which is our live show that uh, we also do with the pre and the post and the broadcast. So I, I knew you would understand, you know, when you take a gamble, but it, it's very, very exciting. And, and the thing about baseball and the thing about the A's, you know, this franchise dating back to Philadelphia has, has always been at the forefront of baseball. And the great thing is, is that we can talk A's. We can talk any sport. I mean, we can talk any team. So really, we're covering all 30 teams plus covering the A's and giving them this great coverage. I wanted to get into, I know what a big Giants fan you are, and Madison Bumgarner looks like Farhan Zaidi's going to have him out there and potentially trade. If you're one of those teams that's looking for a starting pitcher, how do you not line up and say, I need this guy for the postseason? 100%. Uh, you know, I don't like to see the Giants trade Bumgarner, but I certainly understand that they get a long rebuild there. Uh, you know, uh, I would think the Yankees could use him in the worst way. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if Houston, uh, they could use another pitcher. Certainly Atlanta in the NL. You know that Bumgarner would rather go to the NL because they can hit. And obviously Atlanta is not too far from Carolina there, so he could, you know, he's not too far from home. Uh, I don't know if the Braves, who have a great farm system, I don't know if they're going to give the Giants what the Giants would like. The Yankees could give the Giants Frazier, who's a good hitter, uh, can't play defense, doesn't really have a place here to play in New York with, you know, Stanton and Judge and Hicks in the outfield. The Yankees can spare Frazier, who just got sent down to the minor leagues uh, when they made the trade for Encarnacion. So uh, there will be enough teams out there who would want Bumgarner, uh, teams that would obviously have a chance to win a championship. I don't know if the Braves feel that they're going to win a championship even with Bumgarner because nobody's better than the Dodgers in the National League. I think the Yankees, with the Red Sox having won a lot of titles, including last year, for this century. I think the Yankees feel desperate this year that they have to win it all. So I could see the Yankees doing something. And, again, I do think Bumgarner will waive a no trade. Uh, I would think Yankees right now, I still think because of the fact that there's a want, they need another pitcher, and they have a spare guy they can give the Giants who's good in Frazier. I still make the Yankees the team to beat there as far as Bumgarner is concerned. I really do. Now, obviously, the Yankees, what a year they've had with all the injuries and, and where they are and still standing. I, actually, Encarnacion, the, the Mariners were here when he got traded. I understand for the regular season, but have they become too right-handed for postseason baseball with you know so many teams having all these great right-handed relievers? Uh, I'm not worried about the Yankees right-handed. I am a little worried about the Yankees being a home run oriented team. And you're right, everybody on that Yankee team, except for DD, is going to basically hit right handed in big games. I'd be a little worried about the Yankees being a little feast or famine. And, you know, they will strike out a lot. Stanton will strike out plenty. So will Judge. So will Sanchez. Uh, so I'd be a little worried about the strikeout proportion and, of course, a little too much with the homers. I'm, I'm not worried about righty to righty. If the Yankees are swinging the bats well, they're going to hit anybody with the maybe exception of Verlander in a big game. Um, I listen, the Yankees need another pitcher. 
Uh, the Yankees will have a formula in the postseason where they will go to a million relievers, as we all know. And there's a chance that when you do that, you're going to find somebody who doesn't have it. I'd be a little worried about Boone making too many moves in that spot. So, I mean, I, the Yankees, and of course, Houston's very good. So, th- this will be a I mean, the Yankees this year have to win it. Uh, if they lose in the postseason this year, that's not going to be accepted in New York. Uh, the Yankees need to get to a World Series. If they lose the World Series, I'm sure the Yankee fan will live with it. But the Yankees have to get to a World Series. So, uh, a, a lot of pressure on the Yankees. I think it's going to be a very, very interesting American League. I think really the only two teams that can get to a World Series out of the American League are the Yankees and the Astros. I don't think the Twins, I think they're built for the regular season. I don't think the Red Sox are going to go to the postseason. Tampa just got waxed here in New York. They don't beat the Yankees with that punch-and-judy lineup. So this will be a, uh, I think this is a Yankee-Astro thing, and the thing to keep an eye on is the fact that they could play a best-of-five series instead of a best-of-seven series based on the fact that Minnesota might have the best record, and if that's the case, they would play the wild-card winner, which is not going to be the Yankees, which would be Boston and Tampa. So... We keep an eye on that. And I know you think maybe the A's, but really Boston or Tampa. You know, we just had the Orioles here, and we had Jim Palmer on the show, and just the disgust in, in his in his face and his voice about where they are. And, my, and Mike Elias, their general manager, and I'm looking at, you know, what is the plan here? How do you feel as a long-term baseball fan where you just have so many teams that are, are trying to go into this total dumpster fire, revamp, we're going to try and be like the Astros. It's not going to always work out like it's worked out for the Astros. Or the Cubs, 100% right. But the problem is, if you're the Orioles, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go bring in some free agents, moderate free agents, and go out there and then bang your head against the wall and get pounded by the Yankees and the Red Sox. They tried that with Chris Davis. They gave him $161 million. It was the worst signing in the world. And now they they can't get rid of him. So the Orioles tried to be competitive. They know uh, they brought in Alex Cobb. That was a disaster. They brought in Jimenez. That was a disaster. Davis is an unmitigated disaster. So nobody can pick on the Orioles because they tried to do it, as you just said, to try to maintain some credibility as a franchise, win some games, maybe get a little lucky and, you know, go out there and win a postseason series. They lost that terrible game, of course, to the Blue Jays. But they tried it, and it wasn't successful. So, and when you're in a division with the Yankees and the Red Sox, I cannot blame you if you're going to, you know, wait for another day before you go out there and try to compete with them. So I have no problem with what Baltimore is doing. I, Kansas City just won a championship, so you can't kill them. White Sox appear to finally have straightened out a little bit. Tigers, you know, have been a pretty competitive team, so they're going to go in a different direction. I think it's a very tricky spot. I think it's more of an American League problem. I think it's also got to do with the fact that these American League teams see how good the Yankees and the Astros are, Red Sox normally, and they think they can't win even if they try to win and win 90 games, that they're not going to win a championship series against those clubs. The Indians would be case in point. So they're not going to, you know, they're going to go in a different direction. I, it's bad for the sport, but I can't, I, I can't kill the Baltimore Orioles for regrouping. I really can't. We're hitting a record amount of home runs right now and going to hit more than 1,000 than last year. Going to set the record. Was talking to Scott Emerson, the pitching coach of the Athletics, and we are talking about is the ball juiced, and then he brought up, hey, is the bat juiced? Is the bat harder? So if we have the harder balls and the harder bats, what's your opinion on all these home runs that are flying out of the yard on a nightly basis? I think, uh, Christopher, it's a combination of about 20 different things. Launch angles velocity uh, of the pitchers so the ball travels more, smaller ballparks. I think the ball this year might be a little tighter, so as a result, that will fly too. Uh, I don't know enough about the bats. I'll listen to Scott if he seems to think that's a factor. I think it's a lot of issues. I think this is a cycle thing. I think you'll see baseball try to readjust next year and keep the home runs down a little bit. So I think you'll see them do something specifically maybe with a – what they do in Colorado with the dehumidifier with the balls, I think you'll see something down the road. Uh, but I think it's a combination of about four or five different things that has brought us this home run explosion. And it's too bad. A good case in point the other night, Houston's playing the Reds. Uh, Houston trails by a run in the ninth. Houston gets a leadoff guy on, one of those young kids who's got a lot of speed. Doesn't steal the base. Bregman's up, first pitch pops up. Next guy's up first pitch, he pops up, guy's still in first base, and the next kid strikes out. 
Now, the, can you imagine that? You didn't try to move the runner over. He didn't give the guy a chance to have some st- a stolen base, then move him to third and tie the game up. I mean, the game is, you know, they, they don't believe in moving the runners. They don't believe in butting people over. You know, it's a different game. They believe in hitting the ball out of the ballpark is what they believe in. And as a result of that, you're going to have a lot of homers. And you're going to have, then you're throwing a bad, a, a juice ball, and you're throwing, as Scott said, maybe some juice bats. And you're going to have a lot of, you know, 11-8 games with a lot of solo homers. That's the way the sport is right now. Yeah, and I, before we get you out of here, I had to get your uh, reaction. We were just talking to Mark Canna yesterday about, and I was with the ball club in Texas when he did his bat flip and Sampson wasn't happy about it, was barking at him. Then the very next day, we had the Muncie uh, up against Bumgarner. What's your take on let the kids play in the bat flip? I don't like it. Uh, I understand why baseball is doing it. Uh, I'm going to do the old Chuck Noll argument where you want to be act, you know, with the guy who scored a touchdown and danced, act like you've been there before. So uh, I am going to go with that. Uh, baseball is in a tricky spot. They want the kids to go out there and have fun, the Ken Griffey ads, and then they go out there and they have fun, and then the pitcher dances, and then the hitter gets mad, and the hitter looks at a home run ball for three hours, and the pitcher gets mad, then they got a then you got uh, uh, beaning people and everything else. It really, it, in a lot of ways, it's baseball's fault. They, they want this emotion, but these are young kids who are very competitive who don't like to be shown up when somebody hits a home run or there's somebody who's struck out. And as a result of that, you have, uh, you know, beanball incidences and everything else. Now, beanballs are not bad. You know, it brings attention. They get on ESPN. Baseball needs to become more of a conversational piece in, in, the, in the sports world than it isn't. It needs to become more of that. So the bean balls and the incidences are not so bad, but then they suspend players. So it's a weird catch-22 for the sport, uh, but they've gone in this direction. They want to appeal, as you know, there's uh, Christopher to the younger fan. So they're they're going to allow the players to do things that are a little crass that Joe DiMaggio in his grave I can't believe they're going to allow this to happen. You've been a pioneer in our business and radio, and, of course, your TV show is fantastic on the MLB Network. Thank you so much for taking the time. We truly appreciate it. Hey, you know what? Great job on you guys' part. Uh, That's a heck of a job doing this 24-7 every day of the year. give you a lot of credit. Good luck. Thank you, Chris. Take care. Okay, buddy. Well, it is always great to bring back a Bay Area kid, and I've been looking for ever since – Sig, I found you were going to come on today. I, I, I've been, like, fascinated to talk to you about how baseball and everything's changing. You grew up in the Bay Area. You went to UC Davis. You grew up an A's fan. That's right. A, a lot of experience here headed to Billy Ball and and the Bash Brothers games for sure. And got to see your mom in Las Gatas today. Yeah, just came up there now. So good to have you here. And, and I think about your background you were a former engineer at NASA. How do you go from NASA to getting into Major League Baseball? It was uh, quite a few unsolicited proposals, showing up uninvited in meetings, and then even with that behavior, it was uh, alignment of the planets. It was good luck. And you've gone from the Cardinals to the Astros, now to the Orioles, correct? Yes, sir. So what, when you first got in, why did you think this would be for you and you'd be successful doing this? I was always fascinated with the research and the numbers since I was a kid, but never had the imagination that I would be anything but an outsider until, surprise, surprise, the book Moneyball came out. And then when that came out, I thought all the teams were going to be climbing over each other for their own quant, and I just needed to let them know I'm here and willing to relocate and I'd have a job. But So I was definitely wrong on on uh, how easy it would be to get in, but um, I was right in that it, that book um, sort of was the starting point of a, a change in, in the industry. Isn't it amazing how one book not only changed one sport, but started changing the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, then people took it to corporate America, said, read this book. That one book changed so much here that Billy Bean's become this huge public speaker. It's crazy the book was that powerful and the movie. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Thank goodness. Yeah, it really changed. So now tell me in in the past few years how much, because Moneyball, we talked to David Force about this, and you know David, long time with the A's. That was about math equations. 
we've so moved on from just math equations to where we have all this technology, whether it's TrackMan, Rapsado, we got the, the, we got yeah. the cameras. Where are we now versus where we were with Moneyball? Yeah, I think in uh, the bigger picture, Moneyball was sort of about finding inefficiencies that you could take advantage of to make better decisions. And a front office is, is really a series of decisions, one after another. And, um, yeah, math is often a tool to, to check your hypotheses. But as time goes on, more and more technologies come, more and more data come, um, more and more things to analyze and hopefully find uh, an insight, you know, something similar to what was described in the book and then take advantage of it. It's no different than I think what goes on in, in any industry. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, living here in the Bay Area with buddies that work for Amazon or Google or Apple, it's all about data and analytics, mm -hmm. what they're using and why they've become so successful. I guess for me, the thing that is really the next wave is how do we make our own players better through this technology, like skill development? Do you see this as the next wave? Yeah, it's a wave that's already started. Um, it's, it's well documented. Um, some of the things that Astros started doing five, six years ago with uh, some of the data that was available. And instead of just bringing in and evaluating a player differently, you were actually bringing them into a system. And that system was now different based on how it was using data to develop the players. So back in the day, under Earl Weaver, they had the Oriole way. Now it's like you're developing your own Oriole way, but you're doing this, I guess, through technology. Yeah, I think in the 15 years that I've been in baseball, like I've seen it change so much, and I've been fortunate enough to be in the middle of a lot of it with Jeff Luno in St. Louis, and then again with the changes going that went on in Houston. And so a lot of it is bringing in the lessons we've learned, the technologies that we've put to use and bringing them to an organization that historically hasn't really prioritized that stuff. And, you know, with Houston, they have gone away from, they still have scouts, but, but they're not as much scouts driven. Are you going to do the same thing in Baltimore? Are you going to really follow the model of Houston? Or do you guys have a way you think that you, you learn from Houston, but now you're going to do it in your, the way you guys want to do it? Yeah, I, I disagree a little bit. Like, um, they're still scouts driven. Just as the data, as video, as technology has become available for the players that you're scouting, scouting has to change to some degree. And I think that's what Houston did quite quickly under, under the leadership of Jeff Luno. So there still are scouts, just their roles are quite a bit different um, because simply there's a whole lot different um, amounts of information coming in. And so some of those lessons, yeah, we're going to take and, and apply with the Orioles, but that's not unique. Like, the rest of baseball is doing the same. And in your time dealing with these amateur players, there's now more information on these amateur players than ever before. Colleges are using a lot of the technology, showcases, right. and there's a lot of video out there. How much has that changed since you've been in the game? Yeah, quite a bit. Um, I think we were happy to just get counting statistics on college players for the draft. And, um, and that's what our raw materials we had to, to better our decisions. But now they've all been throwing um, with TrackMan devices. Um, you have batted ball information. You've got um, the pitch locations. You could get a sense of their plate discipline. And this is college guys I'm speaking of, but it's the same with high school and 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 now international too. I always thought the track man thing was really interesting. As, as my brother, who was a teaching professional in golf down in San Diego, he used to test for Titleist in the early 90s with track man. Right. Track man back then was about selling golf clubs and golf balls and proving to you through technology why you need to buy this golf ball and this club. And the fact that we're now using this later on, we didn't use this back then, and right. now it's about making humans better, not trying to sell equipment. Yeah, and... And the technology was used to actually make the human beings better, too. And in my opinion, a lot of the things golf is, has done in the past is a preview of what baseball is going to do. So much of our technologies, whether it's TrackMan or the blast motion devices, um, is standard in, in golf already. And it's, it's just new to baseball. And the whole thing about Moneyball was, hey, we're, we're, we're trying to find the diamonds in the rough. 
You know, we're finding guys that, that you don't think are that good, but we're finding everybody caught up, and Billy talked about that. Billy yeah. Bean talked about, you know, everybody was now doing the same thing. Yeah. And now everybody's using the same technology. What do you think will be the next wave? Um, that's hard to say, and if I had a good idea, I'd probably keep it to myself right now. <laughs> you would tell us on AceCast Live? Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> so you can imagine. I mean, if you just Google, like, uh, next-gen technology in baseball, you'll see all sorts of mad scientists creating um, all sorts of uh, equipment, testing, visualization training, uh, virtual reality. Um, I bet the majority aren't ever going to be ready for prime time, but what we look back on as, wow, this was a game changer, is probably going to come from that family of things right now. Yeah, I've heard about stuff about now let's start dealing with the human brain and neuroscience. Have, have you heard about that and how we could be looking into that with our ball players? Yeah, no, I've seen I've seen a lot of that too. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting where, where we are truly going in the game of baseball, and I think about the – you know what you guys are taking on you've done it before with the houston astros when, when, when you start to project okay when we're going to rebuild an organization do you guys have like a time frame in your mind of when you expect that that you'll start to winning ball games once again no we don't and i don't think anybody who has experience in baseball can there's still so much variability there's so much uncertainty there's so much that you can't predict that all you could really control is, is we're going to start right now and we're going to um, do our best to make the best decisions, to have the best processes, to take advantage of all the information available. And that's going to start bleeding into our decisions, which will bleed into better evaluated players, better developed players, hopefully better decisions at the major league level, um, which in the long run will lead to more success than in the past. But how it compares to the Yankees and Red Sox and – Rays and Blue Jays, um, none of us know. Yeah, you're in a division that you think about. Uh, there was a great article earlier this year. It was actually uh, during football season, the athletic, about how Brian Cashman in 98, as he had built one of the best teams in the history of the game, actually called Billy Bean about analytics, and they really weren't doing analytics then, and George Steinbrenner was not about it. And now they're 20 or so strong yeah. with their own analytic department. We've heard about the Rays. They've brought it all in-house. You're in a division where there's a lot of smart people and there's a lot of money to be thrown around. Yeah, and there's some very good player development systems right now. You, you speak the truth. Do you marvel at what the Rays do with the lowest payroll? Yeah, you have to admire what the Rays do and, and even what the Yankees do with um, a large payroll. Many people would think there's nothing broke to fix, but... But uh, Brian Cashman had the vision to realize that uh, this might not be enough in the future. And, and despite the large payroll, um, was able to make these changes. So I, I admire that, too. Let's end on this. And I'm sure right now where we are, everybody's in the buy-in mode. But how important is it from top to bottom in your entire organization to say, this is how we're going to develop players, this is how we're going to win, and everybody who's employed by the Orioles has to be pulling on the same rope. It's mandatory. I think a lot of the success when we look back on it was because of Jeff Luno and how he got the entire organization on the same page. And he was very specific and very strict with what was expected of you if you are to remain in this organization. And my opinion, so much of the success was not because we were doing better math or because we had better technologies, but we had the leadership, as you speak, to get everybody on the same page. That's very interesting because that was the thing about Moneyball is we're smarter than everybody else. This is about leadership. This is about it starts at the top. And as we know with all great businesses, leadership directs everything down. And when you have great leadership, you have success. Right. Um, you could study the data and find your insights and, and have it sitting right here in your hand. But if the decision maker isn't going to use it, you, you may as well have done none of it. We really appreciate you coming down. I, you know, everybody we talk to, they go, "What is this? What are you guys doing? You're on the field. You're coming down." We really appreciate you no, stopping my pleasure, by, Chris. and this was this was awesome. Good to have you back home. And pleasure. A, another South Bay guy, and uh, good luck to your Orioles. It's going to be fun to watch you guys, and hopefully see one of the great baseball cities that we have in this game, and one of the best ballparks of all time, Cabinet Yards. Rise up again to be battling the Yankees, the Red Sox, and the Rays. I love that thought. I love it, too. Hey, thank right. you. It was nice meeting you. You, too.
the mayor of Oakland, Libby Schaff, who joins us here on A's Cast Live with Chris Townsend. It's an honor to have you on our program. Thank you so much for stopping by. We know what a big A's fan you you are. Yes, no, it is so exciting to be down here on the field. And I'm here, of course, for another reason tonight. It's Oakland Promise Night at the A's game. Yes, you're throwing out the first pitch, too. Are you, you got the arm ready to go? Um, let me just tell you, I am a better mayor than pitcher. <laughs> Thank God. Well, I know you're good people because we have a mutual friend, Sean Carroll, who grew up with you. Absolutely. And, and uh, I've talked a lot finding out about you through Sean. So uh, I, I know a lot of the stuff that you've done, some great stuff before you even were mayor. But let's talk about Oakland well, Thank Promise. God he's not telling you all the stories <laughs> from high school, yeah. our Skyline High School days. Tell us exactly what Oakland Promise is and why it means so much to you. Well, listen, Oakland Promise is a cradle-to-career initiative where we are wrapping ourselves around Oakland students to make sure that they can go to and through four-year college, two-year college, or trade school. We want our kids to succeed, and we want them to know that an entire community is behind them from the day they're born, from the day they start kindergarten. And the Oakland A's have been such a great partner for the Oakland Promise. And I think about education. My wife's a teacher in Milpitas, and so you, you see the struggles. And now, you know, for us, think about what college costs for us and what it costs now. It's insane. It is insane, and it's not just tuition. It's the cost of housing and food and the whole shebang. And that's one thing that's great about Oakland Promise. The financial assistance we provide is not just for tuition. It's for your books. It's for your living expenses. And I want you to know that the A's have been great. They have been incentivizing, for example, seniors to fill out the FAFSA. That's the form to get your financial aid from the state and federal government. We want every student to know that this is an option for them, and the A's have been great partners. So if you're a senior in Oakland, you need to sign up for this right now. Absolutely. And listen, it's not just for high school students. We give every kindergartner a $100 scholarship during their kindergarten wow. year. We do matched. If parents want to open a savings account, a college savings account, we will contribute $50 to reward that. We also are providing future centers for our middle schoolers and high schoolers to kind of demystify the whole college thing. And we even are starting with some of our babies. Uh, we are uh, have a pilot with, with parents from the moment their child is born, they get a $500 college savings account. They get financial coaching because we want them to see every child as college material from the moment they're born. That's what championship is about, right? Do you, do you, do you think this is something that could be adopted by all towns around the cross of, across America? You know, I can tell you right now that at least 20 cities across America are trying to replicate the Oakland Promise. We've been featured by Harvard, by Stanford. Uh, Jill Biden, the, the second lady of America, has um, highlighted our Promise program here in Oakland because we start earlier and we go later. We don't just give a scholarship. We actually provide a mentor to help those kids get to and through college. It's it's really the whole nine yards, and that's what's so exciting because that's how we do it in Oakland. Exactly. We don't do anything halfway. So we got to do it all. You think about how the A's have been the first in so many different things in baseball. What, you, what you're seeing right here, right now we're the only team in Major League Baseball that's doing this. We are the guinea pig for all 30 teams. So everywhere you look in Oakland, whether it's Oakland or it's the Oakland A's, there's always a first. That is right. And you know what? In Oakland, we always represent. We are change makers. We are radicals. We always want to do things first and best. The A's are no exception. The Oakland Promise is no exception. It is definitely a place where we are bigger and better, and we are unafraid to do things that are super ambitious like building a new ballpark at Howard Terminal. Hashtag rooted in Oakland. And <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to get your opinion on this because I think that the last Warriors game really finally woke people up that they are leaving. They're going to be Aww. San Francisco's team now. And, but that's why it means so much to get this new ballpark that you want to get done down at Howard Terminal for your A's. Oh, my gosh. I have had this vision since when I was campaigning for mayor six years ago. Like, this has been my dream. As an Oakland girl, I always say, you know, I grew up, we never had blueberry muffins. We only had Vita blueberry muffins <laughs> in my house. So, um, yes, it is a bold vision. It's very exciting. I knew from the day I became the mayor that I was going to be saying goodbye to the Warriors, but I was fighting to keep my A's rooted in Oakland. And now we've got alignment. We've got 
ownership and management that are all fired up about this vision of a waterfront ballpark with great amenities, great activity, people walk into the game, and actually some beautiful development right here in East Oakland to actually memorialize this historic field, all the great moments in sports history that have happened here, but in a way that actually is gonna serve East Oakland residents a lot more than this facility even does now. So I, you know, I, I think about it, cause I, I've been doing this a long time before you were even mayor. And, and for years I've seen renderings, I've heard about different towns, I've seen everything. Really for the first time, I'm telling people, Dave Cavill is getting it done. He's getting the votes. He's in Sacramento. He's everywhere. He, the two of you, the way you're making this happen, this is really real. You know, I sometimes feel like I have a clone because I'm everywhere at the same time. I think Dave has two clones. <laughs> that man is amazing. Um, but we are so aligned, and it is getting done. And it's no easy feat to develop on the waterfront. We know it's an incredible um, asset, it's fragile, it's it's important to our environment, but the A's are doing everything right. They really are listening to their community. They have approached this with a level of humility that is maybe a little unique in the professional sports world and just uh, an attitude that we don't know the meaning of no. It does not exist in our vocabulary. This and, is happening. And what will that mean for your town, Jack London Square, to have a ballpark there and just so vibrant? Well, it's just going to be exciting because people can get there in so many ways besides driving a car. Um, it's going to have good BART access, the ferry, the train. We're going to have the gondola. I love the gondola. Just think of all the first kisses that are going to happen in that gondola. People are going to be walking there. And yes, if you need to drive, you can still get there. But it's going to be surrounded by so much vitality. We already have great stuff at Jack London Square. West Oakland is happening. And it's going to be just a model for environmental stewardship. That is also really exciting. One more time, how can everybody get more information on Oakland Promise? OK, Oakland Promise. Go to oaklandpromise.org, oaklandpromise.org and sign up to be a champion. We show our kids every year the list of individuals who have simply signed their name to say, I believe in you, I believe every kid in Oakland should go to college and we as a community should support them. Sign up as a champion at oaklandpromise.org and then there are some other ways you can get involved beyond that as well. And coming onto the field, you talked about the clone, Dave Cavill coming onto the field. So it's a, it's a jam-packed day here. I just thought this was going to be a Monday against the Orioles. Who knew we would have all this going on today? Well, you're doing a heck of a job. And we, as A's fans, have always appreciated your support, your love for this franchise, knowing that we, we got to do everything we can to get a new ballpark for this great franchise. Oh, yeah. No, the head of MLB will tell you, uh, Rob Manfred, like I, I stalked him the moment I got elected because I knew that this town and this team belong together forever and always. The squeaky wheel gets the grease, as my late mother used to say. So keep doing it and keep charging for us. We're very thankful. And get that arm ready to go. All right. Get that arm. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> like I said, it's better at signing legislation than uh, throwing a ball. But I will do my best for the kids. Thank you very much. We really appreciate Thank the you. time. Thank you. It's really a pleasure. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.